Welcome to the Betterism Podcast, a learning community seeking out life's unusual lessons from its unlikely places. I'm your host, Glenn Binger, author, teacher, and coach, and I'm here to help spark some collective growth. I hope you'll stick around and teach us a thing or two, but first, a few words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a magical fungi supplement company. No, we're not talking magic mushrooms. We're talking natural organic fungi. Lion's mane, chaga, turkey tail, reshi, uh, cordyceps, you name it. They have all different kinds of products available on their website. Um, blends that will help you think, uh, blends that will help you defend and build up your immune system, um, adaptogens that will help you chill out and relieve some of the stress of day-to-day life, especially this day and age. Um, Four Sigmatic has a lot of educational content on their website as well. If you click on their learn tab up top, they actually have something called the Mushroom Academy, which is very helpful. Uh, It's where I learned about the different fungi, mushrooms, and what they do specifically. Personally, I'm a big fan of their Think Blend or their Think Coffee Grinds with Lion's Mane and Chaga. Really kind of sets my brain on fire when I'm sitting down to write or record or put something together for a project I'm working on. Um, They have all kinds of products from proteins to coffee blends to uh, extracts. Um, Check them out at foursigmatic.com. That's four spelled out, F O U R. S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com. If you use the promo code BETTERISM at checkout, you can save 10% off your order. That's foursigmatic.com. This episode is brought to you by a brand new podcast called The Discontents, The Disappearance of a Young Radical. It's actually an audiobook by indie author James Wallace Birch. It's a narrative-style podcast, and it's an adaptation of his cult classic novel split into podcast episodes. I believe there's eight in total. It's available for free on anchor.fm slash jameswallsbirch or wherever you get your podcasts. The novel itself, of the same name, has a four-star rating on Goodreads. It's the first book in the gripping mystery of the 2011 disappearance of Emery Walden, notorious graffiti artist. Um, It is a highly captivating listen I recommend you check it out as soon as you can. Enjoy. All right. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Betterism Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Today, we've got a special longtime friend guest, Ben Tanzer. Ben is a storyteller, an author, a podcaster, a teacher, aware of many different hats. Ben, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, buddy. It's so good to be back and to hear your voice. I feel like it's been forever. Yeah. I don't even What was our last podcast. It must have been years ago it's been a while you might have been in high school for all we know <laughs> i wish man that's a long time ago that's that's like 15 years although yeah, now I feel, I, don't, I feel much better <laughs> i don't know about now though with high school and how it's you know shaped up with the, the zoom calls and the you know this google classroom and that google classroom that, that's got to be a little uh a little daunting i think so i mean i have to say with a shout out you know my younger son I guess I should always throw parent in that bio, but um, <laughs> I mean, I was going to start a high school last week, you know, from his bedroom. You know, my wife found him a kick-ass desk, and this week he had a kick-ass chair. But you know, it's nice. really amazing to me. He's getting up and he's going to classes all day. He's popping out between breaks, and 
At first, they were going to have them do like Zoom lunches, but I think they decided that was a little much. So we get to see him during lunch. But uh, I'm really impressed. I mean, I'm impressed with him and his older brother. His older brother actually left for college in this pandemic. But yeah, man, it's it's so not normal and it's not a new normal. And maybe, and I mean, you're a teacher, you know, I mean, yeah, it's possible there'll be some new normals around hybrid models. Maybe those will serve some students and parents and schools better. But it's wild to me. It's not. It's okay if it's not normal, right? Life is always adapting, but uh, right, right. doing this in front of a computer like I'm doing with you, I'm actually sitting at his desk so he can have the front of, you know, we live in a two-bedroom <laughs> apartment, so we're yeah. always trading. So I'm at his desk and he's taking the front of the house where I was working all day. We're trading off. Swapping spots. It's yeah. so funny. Like, I, I feel like this, so, you know, my school is doing this hybrid thing where like some of the classes are in person and some are, you know, via Zoom. But I, I think it's this setup it's so fascinating to me to kind of see how different schools and academias are handling it. Right. Like to me, the kids seem to be in like their natural element. Right. I mean, you think about this, like they grow up essentially now with some sort of device. Right. And that's where they're most comfortable. And now rather than having them sit in a classroom, you know, for seven hours, eight hours a day at a desk where they're not really allowed to look at their device, it's kind of flipped. Right. Like, so now it's like, yeah, you have, there is some off-screen time, but you have you have screen time now, right? Like that's part of your class is like sitting in on a Zoom call and like, you know, checking in on the assignment and kind of like, you know, muting yourself, turning off your video. And then if you have a question, you kind of chime in and kind of reach out to the teacher, right? Like I've, I've noticed that with my students is like kids that in the past who might have really struggled in the traditional quote unquote school setting are now thriving because they have a little bit more freedom as far as the digital realm goes. Are you seeing that at the higher ed levels too? That's a really great question. You know, let me say, by the way, that uh, I agree with you. And even as you were talking about it, I thought we make, I know things are driven by data or I always hope they are and personality and culture hopefully for the better. Uh, But as I was listening to you, I was thinking about my son, who is not hyper extroverted, um, probably the least extroverted member of our family. Um, And, you know, it made me think how unnatural high school sounds as you were talking about it, right? That you're up at a certain time, you have to go somewhere at a certain time, you have to be there all day, there's very little downtime, there's very little screens, like... Mm -hmm. Who's to say, I mean, I think this is consistent with my first comment. I'd hate to contradict myself five minutes into our conversation, but, you know, why is the model we've always done it the right model? You know, like I'm really fascinated to see why do you have to go to school every day? I I believe in learning every day, but is it normal to be somewhere for seven, eight hours? It's a really good question. You know, I started working at home, you know, first on my longtime job when they would let me, we came up with a schedule and then after my longtime job went away, you know, I've been home working really for two or three years now. I mean, up until six months ago, I was still going to meetings and flying around, but I was right, home right. a lot. I really enjoy it. Now I'm home all the time, though I enjoy that too. Uh, but it just made me think we make all these assumptions, you know, and that's what yeah. you're talking about. In higher ed, it's a really good question. You know, we were talking before the call started my class. I have one definite class I teach every semester, though I'm not teaching it this semester to go to your point, because the program it's part of had to be um, suspended for the fall because of COVID, because Mm. the program I teach in is for a group, is for students who every semester move into the city of Chicago, get jobs, live, you know, a 
big city life and right, uh, right, right. they didn't feel safe bringing students in. So there wasn't a natural way then to offer the class. So I'm actually on hiatus this fall, which is bizarre to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I thought Zoom went very well. I finished the spring semester on Zoom. It was a small class. I will say, and if any of these students are listening, they're welcome to contradict this, but, um, <laughs> you know, I thought they seemed very unhappy to be home. And of course, a lot of them were seniors and they finished their senior year at home. And, you know, they went home for spring break thinking they were coming coming back, even though there was a sense the pandemic was building. And then they just told all of them not to come back. So right. I thought the class, I was very impressed with all of them. And I loved the class anyway. Uh, they rallied. We did the work. I basically adapted the existing syllabus, but none of the content or flow. I just adapted it, you know, taking a three-hour class and spreading it over a couple of days and doing things a little differently. I thought everyone did fine, but then during the summer, I teach this intensive class, you know, three hours every afternoon, younger students, bigger mm -hmm. class. And, you know, I could tell, and maybe I was projecting, like they were prepared. They knew they were home. They knew they were going to be on Zoom. A lot of things were messed up, clearly. And right, that right. class was gung-ho. And, you know, you and I were joking around. We use the breakout rooms. People love the breakout rooms. They do. Um, whatever that is. Now, it is funny. I don't think they necessarily use the breakout rooms for work. But that's something to think about, too. You've got this well, whole abnormal existence. It's a chance to connect with people that technically you really can't see right now. Right. And, uh, you know, especially at the, with the, you know, middle and high school levels, like, you know, the social piece is a huge part of the learning environment. I mean, that's, I think I, humans in general are social creatures, right? Like you need that connection to extend that learning that's supposedly taking place. So like, e even if you, you know, you, maybe a kid doesn't use the breakout on Zoom the way they're supposed to, you know, they're not really talking exactly what the teacher wanted them to but, you know, they're connecting with their friends in a positive way. I mean, that's that's something that is opening their minds. So when they leave the breakout room and they come back, then they're kind of ready to go. You know what I mean? Like their their brain is kind of reset. Like, all right, I had those five minutes to like kind of goof off. But now now I'm going to listen to, you know, Mr. Bringer, you know, right. Mr. Tanzer, whatever. Point. You know, point. think how hard that is to do during a normal day. Well, and, and I think. You know, to me, when we talk about what works, what doesn't work, new normals, old normals, you know, the um, the inability to truly socialize to me. And again, I'm pro education and I am a member of academia. But, you know, the idea that kids can't socialize in a more normal way, that seems very unfortunate. You know, my older son yeah. is in college. They decided to open the college. He goes to the University of Illinois. He's a freshman. He's been there four weeks today. They told him before he got there that there would be almost no classes in person. So he went knowing that he'd be primarily sitting in his room. Uh, but but it was an awesome opportunity. He went from a small middle school to a, even though we live in a big city, a small middle school mm -hmm. to a small high school. And now he's on a campus with 50,000 students. I mean, when they're full capacity. And I know on some level, part of the draw for him was to be somewhere where he could have a bigger universe to socialize in and that he's still more or less been able to do. So yeah. it's huge. I think it's very big. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where the, the method that we, you know, you and I, we're, we're a little older. It's like, we kind of grew up in a time frame where that wasn't even possible, right? Like that, that, that shift or that reform in just how academia operates wasn't really available. But I mean, I've been, since I've 
become a teacher. I've been kind of saying this, you know, the education in itself in this whole country needs some sort of reform. There needs to be a shift. Because like the way that we were taught is not the way that human brains learn anymore. We they, like our our brains have evolved because of the devices that we use. And it's about time that like I mean it sucks that you know it took covid to kind of force everyone to do this, but I mean, it, it was it was due time. We needed to shift the way that learning took place, right? And yes, there's a there's formal and informal learning. That that's definitely part of life. But as far as formal learning goes, like there needed to be some something to kind of shift it over, you know, and and change. I mean, even even if it's something stupid like the way that they're socializing, because even outside of school, right? Like that's that's how most kids these days are, are communicating that way. And, it, you know, not that they're on their phones 24 seven, but it's definitely more predominant now than when I was a kid. I mean, I, you know, smartphones weren't around when I was a kid, but like texting was a thing. So like there was some form of communication via screen. Whereas now it's like, okay, now we're trying to teach the kids and trying to help them figure out like the balance between too much screen and not enough screen, you know? And also building on your point or extending it, there's the cultural shift, which you're referring to, yeah. uh, which I think is very important. But there's also just to me the larger question of what, I mean, here your show, right, is betterism. Like what works better? That's what I'm always fascinated yeah. by. We make, again, I always hope things are driven by data and science and facts. But do we know? I mean, will a hybrid be better? And it extends, right? It also, that's a good question about work. Do we have to hold you know, the kind of work maybe I do, you know, do we have to hold so many meetings? Do they have to be in person? Do you really need me to hop on a plane? And I like all that elements of work. I've never been anti-meeting. You know, I tend to facilitate things. People like me to facilitate. I like to facilitate. So that's a much yeah. better way to attend a meeting anyway. But I love hopping on planes. I love sleeping in hotels. You know, all that stuff people can find to be a drag never got to be a drag for me. Um, I'm also happy to give it all up you know, like now I'm older, but we don't, but what's better, you know, I was talking to someone, we can talk about this if you want. There's a podcast I'm helping one of my clients produce, but we talked to a guy, an entrepreneur who has a business. They do training around leadership and communication. And a year or two ago, he and his partner started saying, maybe people are not going to want, not going to want to go to one or two day trainings forever. Maybe we need to think hybrid. How can we incorporate this new technology? And that was pre, way pre pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, they had already been transforming the business for both cultural and technological reasons. And it has yeah. actually allowed them to thrive during this really terrible time for both business and human beings. Right. It was like the catalyst, you know, and it, again, mm -hmm. it's not, I don't use that in a positive sense because like obviously, you know, all the deaths, the 200, oh man, 200,000 deaths is not a good thing. But in a sense, it was like, it kind of took that to kind of force us collectively as a country, I guess, or as human species to kind of, you know, look at ourselves like, is what we're doing working? Are we, are we doing this right? Like, is there, is there a chance that we can try something else? And that's not to say that it's going to work. I mean, we, you know, part of this whole process is like figuring out what works and what doesn't work. But I think once we're able to kind of, you know, take that critical lens and kind of start analyzing and like you said, like start collecting some data with, you know, the pros versus cons here, I, I think we're going to see a lot of changes across the board, you know, academia and everything else aside, you know, and that, it does suck because you still have, 
you still have some areas where certain industries are clinging to quote unquote traditional norms, right? Like, like for example, it sucks that, you know, your son has to go and stay in the campus and then stay in their room. Right. Whereas like, I, you know, when I went to college, like that was one of the things was like the social piece was like, you go to college to like meet new people and, 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 you know, diversify yourself with various cultures and things. And it's a lot harder to do that when you're, uh, I guess, participating in things digitally. Right. But that's right. not to say it's not impossible to do that. It's just it's changing. it, And we have to be willing to kind of look at that change and see how we can kind of make that change a good thing and take away the bad things that also come with it. And right? it's like, a, also, also, you know, we project what we think are the good things onto how we understand them. Right. So mm, I have this yeah. idea of what college might look like. You have this idea. My wife has an idea. My mom has an idea. My son has an idea based on what he's heard or seen, but he hasn't experienced it. I think one of the amazing things is college post pandemic has an opportunity to be that much more better and interesting for him. Yeah. Um, but, but he is there and they are finding ways to socialize anyway and adapt. And he, since he only knows what's been handed to him the last month outside of what he thinks he knows from TV and movies, he's mm-hmm. figuring it out. I mean, to me, the cool thing is a, it might turn out to be much better than cause he's already finding it to be interesting and, inspiring and social. Uh, but then we also can all ask ourselves, what's the best way to do that? See, again, like what's the best way, not just what's necessary. Maybe there's better ways to do it. And so, you know, I've noticed, I've been reading about this trend where schools are not having students come back, but they want to have classes. And so young people, this makes me sound old, right? But young people are like <laughs> renting houses together in really cool places. Like they're going to Boulder, Colorado or wherever. And they're just all renting a house with the people they want to hang out with. And then they're taking classes from wherever they want. I mean, that to me is amazing. You have to be on campus. You could be on the beach or in the desert or who knows what. Yeah. You're not limited. If they're going to keep classes online, then the students themselves aren't limited. And that, that to me is pretty fascinating as well. Absolutely. And I think that that definitely needs to be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever whoever's designing the programs needs to take that into account. You know, that's think about this, right? Like put, put yourself in a high school. Think back to yourself like and listeners, you could do this, too, if you want. But like think back to yourself in high school. Like I, I have vivid memories of awesome times, but I also have vivid memories of like being bored out of my skull sitting in some class where the teacher was just droning on, you know, there's, there's the pro and con to that. And the same thing now. It's like we're going to see a lot of changes and there's going to be the pros and cons on both sides of that now, right? I mean, you think about a place like your environment, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like I, I learn best when it's just me. I, I don't like sitting in a room full of people and trying to like read a book or watch a documentary. I feel like I'm distracted. And that's just me. I, you know, I'm not going to try to project my own learning uh, preferences onto other people. But putting yourself in an environment where you're comfortable, like renting a house with a bunch of your buddies or, you know, sitting on a beach somewhere. I mean, that's that's only setting yourself up for the right learning that you want to take place, R- regardless of your age or what the content is. I mean, if you don't have to worry about what's around you and you can focus on the content, that's to me, that seems like a benefit. 
Well, that's the other thing, right? So then here's another layer you're adding to this. You know, you and I are creating a whole new uh, <laughs> a <web>. formula, <laughs> right? Which is not just what's better in general, what's more flexible, what's more organic, but then what's individually better for the learner. You know, I, I've always done better just jumping in and sinking or swimming till I figure out how to swim. And and I am funny, here we are, we're both storytellers. That's how I learned how to swim. I was terrified of the yep. deep end. I couldn't learn how to swim and they threw me in a pool. Yep. You know, so and then my wife had the same experience. Now we were kids, you know, but I've always been sort of taking the sink or swim approach and then read about it and try to enhance it. But I'd much rather fail always an interesting theme to me though. I never thought about it that way and then figure out how to fix it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it raises these really interesting questions about education. Like you were talking about space. I was thinking, do I have to be in a classroom? Wouldn't it be nice to be on like a little deck looking at the ocean, which I'm thinking about the time I interviewed you for my podcast and you were in your backyard, I think. I don't know if it faces the ocean, but and as I recall, you're never too far from the ocean either. Yep, that's right. But again, that's, I mean, even in the summer, you know, when I'm, when I'm off from school, right. Quote unquote, um, that's where my, I get my, I attack my TBR stack, the books that I have pile up all year that I want to read. I mean, that's when I, I, I go sit on the beach, my beach chair, bring a couple of books and I just, I plow through it. You know, that's like, that's the environment where my, my mind is most at ease. And that's just me. That's, I'm not saying that everyone's going to be best on a beach, but like, having the ability to kind of recognize and experiment and figure out what works best for you. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's a result of me growing up by the ocean or, you know, living by the ocean now, whatever it is, that just kind of helped my brain develop the way it went. Right. But of course, everyone's going to have their own preference there, you know? And I always, I, to me, that's, that's the most fascinating thing. I mean, like this summer specifically has been kind of crazy over here by the beach because same thing is happening, right? I mean, people are, you know, they're working from home. So there's been an influx of people at the beach to the point where like, it's not, it, it, it has never been this crowded, right? There's definitely more people sitting in the sand next to you because people are, you know, they're working from home. They're going to the beach on their lunch break or they're taking half days, hmm. you know? And that's, that's everyone from students all the way up to like actual adults who have, you know, full-time jobs. Right. So it's fascinating to me to kind of think about how much the environment plays a role on people's attitude towards learning or, or working or, or being productive. Because those things, you know, so often I feel like those things are kind of tossed, tossed to the side uh, prior to this whole, you know, COVID thing. But there, you know, it's it's more about like getting the data than it is like making sure the student is learning what they need to learn, you know. And then I feel like this hit and then that all of that kind of shifted. And then it, it kind of turned into like, like, I mean, my boss has been using the analogies like we're flying a plane and building it at the same time, which I think is fascinating because we're like learning as we go. Right. But it, it kind of shifted from like, all right, instead of collecting all these grades and student data, it's like, yeah, it's not not that it's not important. You're still collecting it. But the focus kind of shifted more on the feedback for the kids. And how can how can you help them better understand the content? So. I noticed it took away the stress from the students. Like they realized, oh, well, the focus isn't really on grades as much anymore. I can actually like learn without the stress of the grade, right? And then they were more apt to be involved in the lesson and want to participate. And even if it's a subject they hated, like math or something, they were still 
more able to kind of communicate with a teacher on a more personal level. Right. And that kind of opens that playing field for like true learning to take place. And I imagine the same thing happened, you know, for those of us that were fortunate enough to keep our jobs throughout all of this, you know, the productivity must have changed somehow. Right. I mean, I'm not in private industry or anything, but I could see how that that shift in in just global mindset has has to have benefited workers, individual mindfulness and mental health. Right. I mean, you know, as well as I do, like the anxiety now, it's, of course, it's a little higher, but, you know, this happened and everyone was kind of forced to be inside for a little while. There was like a moment where like things were quiet and it was it was relaxing, you know. Well, and again, there's right. There's always this belief that the way it's always been done is the way to do it. But one size doesn't fit all anyone or anything. And I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, we as human beings, we also we get stuck. Right. One of my things I'm ultimately and always fascinated by, which is how we get stuck and get in our own way, whether it's emotional or physical or psychic. And, you know, sometimes we have to be forced to make change or more ideally, I guess, transform. Mm -hmm. And this pandemic has to start, as you said earlier, under the umbrella that it's horrific uh, and it's a nightmare and it's really not going to end anytime soon, uh, apparently. But then within all that, people have been forced to think about work differently and think about themselves differently and how they need to function. And, you know, positive and change and transformation can come to your point out of being forced. So we can look at school, we can look at work, we can look at the culture and we can look at ourselves as individuals and ask ourselves, is this my best life? Is this how I want to live? I mean, one of the things I'm so fascinated by with so much of the work I do, including teaching, is how do we get ourselves or how do I help you, whoever you are, be the best version of yourself, right? That doesn't yeah. mean you're the best person in the world, but how are you the best version of yourself, right? Where are you stuck? What's getting in the way? How do we find our way to the next phase and the phase after that and keep building? And, you know, personally, I've always be, always been about looking forward how do i make this better different more interesting cooler you know like that's mm -hmm. what that fascinates me as much as anything yeah i mean that's the whole purpose of this you know the podcast here betterism the, the blog that we run uh, the whole idea is like you know trying to help people realize their own potential that's within them right mm -hmm. i mean the only the only person you should be comparing yourself to is your former self right i mean if you are if you're better than who you were yesterday you're on the right track. Right. And that's not easy to do. I'm not saying it's just like you flick a switch and you're all good. Right. But if you're attempting to better yourself in it, in any way, shape or form, and you're improving step-by-step step each day, that's a win, right? You're, you're on the right track. You're, you're doing, you're doing yourself and your future self a benefit. Right. And being, not that I need to tell you about your mission, right. But being conscious about it. If you're better than you were yesterday, why are you better than you were yesterday? What have mm -hmm. you done? What can we do consciously? And even that isn't one size fits all, but how do you get there? How do we do it in a conscious way that is focused? Not the same for everybody, but um, it's, you know, we are our own projects. And, you know, certainly for me, especially during the pandemic, 
I really tried to ask myself, how do you get to be, how will I get to be better? What will I do differently? How does that work? You know, how does it work, man? Which is another fascination of mine. How does anything work? But how, always asking why, why am I better? How will I be better? What have I done? How do you get there? Like, what's the path? You know, how do you get there? What does it look like? Right. And it's in, you know, it's, it's within that individualism, the, the, the fact that like we are all, every single one of us are our own individual selves. It's within that, that you start to see the, the collective growth, right? The, the ability to kind of be self-aware and like you said, like be conscious about it and be reflective, but then also you know, strive to understand why and how, and then also keep going, right? If you are part of a the right network, I should say, you're part of the right network and you see, you know, your peers around you starting to do the same thing, you know, towards their own goals, might not be the same goal as you, but towards their own goals, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's like a contact hustle. You get You get inspired because this person's working towards their goal and they're accomplishing it. And therefore, like I get, I get motivated by that. I mean, that happens to me all the time with, you know, I, it, it, rappers. Quote, nobody, you know, and they drop a couple singles and drop an album. And then all of a sudden you start seeing them like picking up fans and they start going on. Well, not now, but they start going on playing shows and you start seeing like pictures where more and more people are showing up at their, their concerts and things like that back when we were allowed to have concerts. Like that to me, even though I'm not a rapper, I'm not a musician, I still, I, I get inspired by that. It makes me want to go home and like work on, you know, my book, or it makes me want to go home and like start hustling on the, you know, the new website I'm trying to build for betterism, whatever, whatever the project is. It's kind of one of those things. It's like, if you surround yourself with the right people, that frequency of self-improvement kind of resonates and it, you kind of like take that away with you, which is fascinating to me. Dude, right on. And the research backs it up, right? Like, I know you know that, but when yeah. you surround yourself by people whose goals inspire you, it does encourage you to sort of up your game or as consultants like to say, level up. What I also think is interesting though, and I guess I think of you in this way, but you know, I have a client, he's a scientist and he's very focused on what he calls the science of the positive. Just a fascinating guy, but one of our ongoing dialogues, because I met him back in my nonprofit days and we were at a CDC meeting, mm -hmm. was, yes, better yourself, right? Surround And surround yourself by people who will better you or you encourage you to make yourself be who you want to be. But then don't stop with being, you know, your best self or the best individual you can be. Use that to help transform your neighborhood, your community the world, right? Like, right. don't stop with just being an awesome you. Take that awesome you and try to make the world more awesome as well. And yeah, that can sound a little pretentious when said wrong, but I always want to challenge people to ask themselves, what would make this a better world, right? If you can right. focus on yourself, how do you sort of elevate everything around you, around us? How do you become part of something bigger? What does that look like? I, you know, I really hope people on the regular spend some time thinking about that. And it's a lot of work being the best version of yourself. So I don't want to minimize that. I want to encourage yeah, right. people, but I do think it's followed by asking yourself, okay, now what can I do to make the world better? And, you know, it's not nothing. And it's a double negative apologies. You're a teacher. It's not <laughs> nothing 
for your block to be improved or your community or neighborhood. I don't think everybody has to go out and solve uh, climate change, though I hope they will. Uh, but making change and being part of something bigger than you, you know, it really feels to me that that's then you become the best version of yourself, right? Yeah. You're part of a collective, to use your word. And I'm a strong, again, I spent a lot of time on nonprofits and working on prevention issues. It doesn't happen without collective will. Right. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, and it's, again, you know, it's you, you surround yourself with those right that right group of people and you start to realize that 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 drive to want to make the world a better place doesn't have to be as big as it feels like it does right like i mean yeah of course like solving climate change would be huge right but that's it's not like one of those things like that's not something you're going to just flick a switch and do whereas like sometimes you know bettering the people around you is as simple as just, you know, smiling, asking, asking this person how their day was going because they look bummed out. Right. I mean, that's, if you're able to kind of uh, take that perspective and realize that bettering, bettering everything around you is all about just spreading love. It's really not that difficult. I mean, yes, larger problems require more dedication, more determination, more diligence, but you know, we're all humans. That's not, you're not going to have an awesome day every single day. That's just, that's not reality, right? Like you're going to have shitty days that happens, but sometimes on that shitty day, you know, someone smiles to you. It's like that changes the whole day. I mean, it could be your significant other. It could be your friend. It could be someone you haven't talked to who reached out email, zoom, whatever it is, right? It it's those small gestures that seemingly go unnoticed that really can turn the tides that are around you. Right. And right. So all of that totally love big proponent. And, you know, you know, it makes me think one to your earlier part of your comment. Okay. So it's difficult. Fine. Figure out how you can deal with that. Right. Like things are difficult and positive things are difficult. You know, the other part of your statement though, putting love out in the world that's something we can do, all of us. And, you know, it's funny the way you phrased it, because I totally support it. Those calls can make a big difference, right? We can also make those calls. You know, we can make the call. We can send the email. We can send the text, right? We can smile. We can hold the door for someone. You know, we can put that love out in the world. And, you know, it's important. I always say this to my children. So hopefully I don't sound too paternal right now. It doesn't always come back immediately, right? Like you don't get some immediate payoff, but the goal is to put as much love out in the world as you can. And it's really interesting. I know you probably know all this stuff because you're so well read, but you know, it's fascinating that the science will tell you that even expressing gratitude on a daily basis enhances your own mood, right? Mm -hmm. So just finding a way to feel grateful enhances your mood regardless of how you feel. So why wouldn't you want to do that? Or to, or to give, right? The other thing is by giving and providing other people with love, support, assistance, an ear, whatever it is, it enhances your own mood and your own brain chemistry. And so those are actually the easier things to do, right? You talked about difficult and I hate, I hate that's a little strong. I'm bummed when people shy away from something because it feels difficult, though I get it. Mm. But those are the easy things, right? Pick up your yeah. phone and text Glenn Binger and be like, dude, thinking about you. <laughs> in yeah. your crowded beaches, right? Right, right. Um, 
that's not a big, I don't think that's a big thing. I know it feels hard, but I'm not sure it is. It's a practice, right? It's one thing we haven't used that language yet in this discussion. Sure. It's a practice. How do you build these sort of practices into your day, into your life, into your brain? Because they benefit you and then they benefit the wide range of people you're connected to. They really do. And it's, you know, again, it, it's hard to, it's hard to recognize those things because they are so subtle. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I say this all the time, like our subconscious is always listening. I mean, it, it's listening to the words that come out of your mouth. It's listening to, you know, the, the music that you put into your ears. Um, it is, you know, the books you read, all of those things, like even though you might not immediately, you know, remember them in your short term or your long term memory, like it is affecting your brain and it's affecting the way that your brain is processing information. And yes, it's, it's difficult to develop those habits at the start, but you know, if you are dedicated and you are self-aware and conscious and you are intentful with that practice, it becomes easier. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's tough right now to, it is very difficult right now to be grateful, especially if you're an American, it's, it, that is, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. It's not easy. Right. I, for example, you know, a little personal anecdote, like I, I was having a shitty day the other day, you know, school School started, we're getting, you know, again, I'm half in person and half virtual. So we're getting all of this, you know, excess work because we're in person and there's all these extra protocols that we have to take care of, you know, with mask wearing and social distancing and all that stuff. And then on top of that, we're being asked to like, you know, change our lesson plans and change our materials and make them digital and things. And, you know, it it was one of those days where like, it just got to me, you know, it's the end of the day. And like, you know, someone asked one more thing and it just, it just kind of pushed me over the edge, you know, and I got in my car to drive home and, you know, I sat there, I turned on the radio, turned the car on and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to let this eat me. I'm, I have a roof over my head. I have a car that I can drive home. I have food in the refrigerator, right? It's like you take a second to, to recognize those little things. And it sounds stupid. Like, yeah, I'm I'm grateful. I have, I can go buy a meal, right? Like it sounds dumb, but over the long term, your subconscious, like I was saying, kind of picks up on that. And it becomes one of these things where it's like, if you do it long enough, it becomes easier to recognize those things. And then eventually the things you become grateful for start to evolve, right? I'm grateful for my beautiful wife. I'm grateful for my job as hard as it is, right? I'm grateful for the fact that we live in America. Yes, it's a shit show circus right now, but you know, there are definitely worse places in the world, right? It's it's one of those things that's like if you're not if you're not dedicated to it, that practice, you're not going to get better at it. It's like anything else, right? Like you have to if you want to get good at something, you have to dedicate the time and you got to put in the effort, right? It's not like you can just, you know, flick your flick your switch and all of a sudden you're good. Right. It, it takes practice. And I say that all the time to my students. I'm like, if you want to, you can accomplish anything you want in the world, but you have to practice the skills behind it. You can't just become a pro basketball player and you got to spend years of shooting baskets to get there. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's not easy, but it no. is, it is worth it. Well, and you used the word intention a moment ago. And even though this word is soon going to be a buzzword that everyone is using too much, or maybe mm. it already is, and I'm just in the house too much, this idea of intentionality, right? Which I think is what you're implying there, right? That yeah. you are going about 
intentionally making decisions, engaging in actions, thinking about yourself. Uh, you know, personally, I find it to be a very powerful concept. It's it's super easy. And by the way, I say this without judgment. It doesn't sound like that, but I mean it. It's super easy to go through the day and not be intentional. I mean, yeah. you take care of your business, you take care of your job, you take care of your family. One can do those things and not be super intentional. You know, I think the challenge of a podcast like yours and the things you're talking about and the things I talk about with clients is what does it look like when you bring intentionality to that, right? When you bring ritual and when you bring a plan and when you think about what you want to practice day to day, then you have a chance to elevate all that into something else. And that feels like that's where you're going. And I'm a big proponent and I always was, but I will admit being home like this has really also changed how I think about that. And if that leads to changed brain chemistry and, you know, repetition and ritual, I would love that. You know, I was talking to a client about, they focus on, um, they're all about goal setting. They built a platform to help people with their goal setting. It's much more involved in all that. But Mm -hmm. one of the discussions we got into was talking about the karate kid and let me stress the original karate kid, of course, but uh, they were talking about, how funny all the wax on wax off stuff is, but yep. it is also a metaphor and a lesson for bringing repetition into your life and building ritual so that something becomes instinct, right? And intentional again. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big believer. It was funny. It's the first time someone had brought up karate kid quite like that in that context or recently, but it got me excited. You know, it got me thinking about how do we do that? How do we repeat things? How do we learn? You yeah. Know? I, uh, by the way, since you brought it up, the Cobra Kai is on Netflix right now. That's on, in my queue. I want to watch that. Oh, yeah. Everybody's talking about it, at least on the social media feeds. I dip in and out of. So, yes, I will need to add that as well soon, too. Not, because... not, not that I have the time, but, you know, it's in no, there. No, no time for it, but it is apparently the jam, and there's something apparently you and I are missing. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing. People keep saying it's good and it's not as cheesy as it looks. So I'll have to check that out. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like that that muscle memory of mm-hmm. training yourself for something that you don't even know that you're training yourself for. I mean, you know, to kind of switch gears and kind of since you, this is how you and I connected with with writing and, and you know, the, the lit community. But, um, you know, as far as my personal skills have developed within writing in itself it's one of those one of those kind of skill sets where you know people think they can just kind of pick up a keyboard or a pen and kind of be awesome at writing right but mm-hmm. you and i both know that's you know it's that one in a million uh, ever happens um but you know you start to see patterns in your own work right and again this i'm talking about writing because that's me but this really applies across any artistic creative outlet but you start to see these patterns where like you know, you look back at some of your old work and you're like, God damn, that was awful. Like, what was I, what, I thought this was good at one point. Right. But then that you, you start to recognize that and you start to think like, well, what about this thing, this book I'm writing right now? It's like now, I think this is good now, but you know, maybe, you know, 10 year older me is going to look back and be like, this is garbage. Right. But part of that reflection piece of looking back at your work, that that's part of the growth. That's part of the the intentful self-awareness where you you're looking at your skills and how far they have developed over a period of time and how you can take that framework and apply it to keep improving or 
take the framework and apply it to another area, right? So like if you're, you know, how did I, how did I learn how to write, you know, the most beautiful poem? And how can I take that, that, that learning ability that I learned from that and apply that to, I don't know, sculpting, right? And that's not to say that you're going to be just because you're good at writing poems means you're going to be a good sculptor, but the skill sets, the mental framework that you're using to learn those skills of the medium happen to cross over. And it's, I, I find that it's, it's easier <laughs> the older you get, right? And I, again, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm that old. I'm not young at the same time, but I'm starting to see this pattern arise where like my older work is kind of starting to shape my present work. And then my present work is shaping my future work, which is kind of weird to say out loud, but <laughs> I, I think you understand where I'm going with this. Does that make any sense? Yeah, right on, man. Look, we are all part, it's all part of a continuum, right? You're either growing or you're not growing. You're stuck or you're not stuck. Ideally, hopefully, especially as an artist, but not only as an artist, you're building on what works and you're learning from it. And in the best worlds, you're able to see, right, how it serves you in other places. You know, I didn't, you know, as a writer, I got a late start. And I'm the son of an artist, so I knew I couldn't be precious about it, that being precious doesn't guarantee you anything, right? Having the right desk, the right pen, the right music, the right time of day. So from the beginning, I just eschewed that. I didn't even pretend that I was going to figure that part out. Right. You know, on the other hand, I had always been an athlete, and I believe you are a hockey player, right? Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, I never really, as an athlete, elevated myself to the level I might have if I had been a little more ritualistic, if I had studied things more. And as a runner, that's a little tough, tougher than say when I was a wrestler or when I played volleyball or ultimate Frisbee, which I played for years. Um, but, you know, one thing I brought from sports to writing was the idea that treat it like an athlete, go at it every day, mm -hmm. you know, don't settle. You know, I decided from the start, never write for less than 30 minutes. And, you know, by the way, this is me, right? It's not a commentary on the best way to do something. You know, we're talking about how we learn. So for me, it was get up every morning. And again, I had kids almost as soon as I started writing. So I've never really had sort of an open space. It's actually easier now that they're older, uh, much easier, which most writers would say. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I had this idea that you do it every day, you don't wait for inspiration, though inspiration is awesome when I get it, that, you know, that it's blue collar in that way, you know, that you go to practice and you repeat. Yeah. Um, and then you try, I don't think I was as conscious, and then you try to learn from it. So this is obnoxious. You know, when my first book came out, um, it's like it came out to a lot of acclaim. It came out to a very intense uh, reaction, though. I always had a sort of intense fan base. And you know, my first novel, and I'd already been writing for seven to ten years. What was your What I, was your first book, if you don't mind me interrupting? Oh no, dude, please! The first book was called Lucky Man, um, and that came out two thousand seven. Okay, two thousand seven oh, yeah. so sounds that, right. That's right around the time you and I, I think, first connected. Maybe a little after yeah, that. Dude, I met you, which means I met you at the beginning of that phase of my career, but also about ten years into me trying and having very little momentum before that, right. you know, just pushing, pushing, pushing. It's always interesting when people talk about getting published or rejected. I, I still have a file 
we, you know, we used to mail out things back then. It wasn't online. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Um, I have a huge stack of rejections. I have saved as motivation. You know, that's my Michael Jordan thing. Yeah. But, uh, Self-addressed you know, stamped envelope. <laughs> all of it, brother. I'm sure I still got some around I never mailed or got yeah. returned. Yeah, yeah. But the only thing I was going to say was, you know, that very first novel, I had a very strong idea in my head at what it would be if when I wrote it and uh, when I decided it was time, I knocked it out. Um could break that down if that was remotely interesting but the point i want to make is you know people really respond people who found it responded when i wrote my second book i had this idea what it was supposed to sound like and it was funny one of the people who'd reviewed the first book very positively i sent it to him for his feedback and he was very upset with the second book (laughs) uh felt that i was trying to write something popular um which frankly would be okay. We could talk about that too, but Mm. I wouldn't have an issue with that. But what's funny was I actually wasn't consciously trying to do anything. I was trying to write a second novel. And what I realized with his reaction, he sent me all these notes, some of which were not helpful. Um, But one of the threads seemed to be, this doesn't sound like the guy who wrote the other book. And I didn't quite know what to do with it initially, but then I saw someone, this feels embarrassing, but it was so helpful to me. Somebody wrote a review of the book on Goodreads and they described what they liked about it. Um, and they sort of focused on how stripped down it was. And, you know, I always aspired not to be punk, you know, I'm too middle-aged and too dad and too <laughs> interested in healthcare and retirement funds to be punk, but <laughs> I like the aesthetic and, you know, what she described to me was very much a punk aesthetic stripped down sort of violent jagged whatever words she used and i realized that that's what was missing in the second book i had tried too hard to form you know big thoughts and long paragraphs and Mm. that's not it's not necessarily how i write but more importantly not say how i wanted to write i wanted to be more ramones you know or beastie boys i wanted it to feel like uh you know um I don't know, uh, Gus Van Zandt movie. And so I went back to this second book and I stripped out just incredible chunks of it. And when I was done, I was like, oh, this is the book I want to write. And that really set me on a kind of path. It became a reminder of what the voice, what I wanted the voice to be, you know? And it's actually helped me ever since. And I was able to write and I'm very lucky and I'm talking about that too. I'm putting out all these, these seeds if they're helpful, but you know, I've been very lucky, but it also allowed me then to go write the books I wanted to write, write the essays I wanted to write, the short stories. And you know, that was a good run, 2007 to 2017. But it was really the reaction to that second book, which did get published, but it got published in the form, the stripped down form that set mm. me on a kind of path because then it allowed me to introduce, you know, voice to ritual. I already had the ritual part down. It allowed me to see the kind of voice I wanted, you know, like a two minute song. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating how the how feedback, especially these days, with how instantaneous it can occur. Mm-hmm. But feedback in itself, and this has come up on the podcast a few times, actually, uh, most most recently with the last episode with Patrick Moore. But uh, it, this 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 art of criticism, or I should say, this art of knowing when to listen to the criticism, um, is it's not easy, especially this day and age with, you know, everyone and their mother having an opinion on Twitter, but the art of recognizing good criticism from bad criticism is essential if you're an artist, right? Cause you have to, you have to be able to 
look at your own work from a standpoint of open-mindedness where you're not, you know, you're not really thinking with your heart as much as your brain, at least when it comes to the editing phase, right? You're, you're trying to kind of make it a, a complete work, but that's not also to say that you want to just eliminate all of the, you know, the you about it, the, the emotion behind it. Right. So I think criticism in the, in that regard is, is essential when it comes to shaping and reformatting and, you know, cutting things out, like you said, right. That's not, that's not something that's easy to do, especially if you're, you know, I always, I always say this, but like, you can't be the kind of writer who like doesn't show their work to anyone and then expect when you go to publish it, that everyone's going to want to read it. Right. You have to kind of, you know, get some sort of like beta reader to give you some basic feedback. Right. And that, that takes practice too. That's a whole skill set in its own, but the act of recognizing that criticism and kind of, you know, taking a step back and looking at your own work and saying like, yeah, this, this is what I wanted, but it's, uh, you're right now. Like this, this just, this is didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. So how, what can I, what can I add? What can I remove? What can I shape it with? You know, those are things that like, if you want to be a writer, I mean, that that's part of the territory. You have to be willing to accept the criticism, the good from the fat, bad feedback, um, which is not easy, especially when someone's talking about one of your babies, you know? Like it's it's very easy to fall off the the ledge there and be like oh I suck uh, this sucks I'm gonna scrap this project, so well, it's really helpful to figure out how to receive constructive criticism right in the same way it's very helpful to figure out how to give constructive criticism mm-hmm. and part of that is finding people you trust and then opening yourself up to maybe hearing things you don't want to hear like this guy when he read my second book. I didn't find his memo helpful. I found it annoying and, you know, I don't know what I found it. It was his approach. So I had to like catch my breath. But after I read this very positive and constructive review, it was short. I was able to go back and look at his memo through a different lens. So while his initial memo I found off-putting, you know, using this woman's review as a lens, I was able to pick out also what he was trying to say. And I realized something, this is going to sound really twee of me. You know, (laughs) he was disappointed in the second book because he was so invested in my voice in the first book. I also came to see it Mm. as he's not just lashing out or he's actually lashing out because, you know, I had given him something that he really, I mean, and again, this makes me sound precious, but, you know, I had given him something he really appreciated. He wrote a very long review and very detailed. And I think I, you know, I somehow let him down and right. that's really not on me. And I was fine with that, but it also gave me a greater sense of why he was writing me a five page angry memo. You know, he sure. was let down and, you know, that also happens with fans, right? He was also a fan and I don't have that many fans i have enough i'm happy to have more if people are listening but uh he was <laughs> also around, as a fan, you know and being a yeah. fan is hard is hard too <laughs> absolutely and i think you know as a consumer of art or or music or whatever it is like you have to you also have to recognize that like the person or group producing the art they're going to evolve just as much as you are right so 
you, you have to be willing to give things a try and like yeah it's it's okay you, you don't have to like everything that your favorite you know band puts out right like every band has that one album that you know they listen to the wrong person they listen to the wrong criticism and they put it out anyway and it just wasn't their thing and that's that's okay though that's part of the evolutionary process as an artist right the key is to like keep going don't let that don't let like one bad book or one bad you know review ruin your own process right like use that use it to kind of develop and, and continue growing along your own artistic growth right also, i mean it's yeah, not it doesn't it's, mean it's there's no oh, end point Sorry, brother. that's okay i was just gonna say there's no end point to that it's it's right. it's a road that keeps going it only ends when you decide to give it up <laughs> right and yes completely and it doesn't mean it's bad right first off that's one person secondly right. the goal and i always say this because i've been doing a lot of coaching the last couple of years with authors which is new which i thoroughly enjoy which has gone fairly well and one thing i really push is don't think of yourself as writing a single book think of yourself as creating a body of work and that body of work may also be more than writing. It may be lectures and presentations and podcasts. And when you look at it as a whole, well, sure, then someone can come back and say, I really loved your first book. I kind of liked your second book. And then your fifth book bowled me over. Like that's the conversation also. And this is me. Yeah. This is my ambitious self. I want you, whoever you are, to have to think about all the books, right? And decide what you like and don't like. I mean, what's ironic. Um, and this is a little pissy of me. You know, this guy came back a year or so later when the book was published. And he said, got to say, I was really wrong with that memo I sent you. That's saying you something. Know, he said, I read the book and I realized the importance of what you were trying to do and why people want to read that. And I don't even know if it was intended entirely as a compliment, but he retracted. Uh, on the other hand, his memo did force me to think about how to get to that stripped down nature that I really value. So mm. I was cool. It was fine, but it was also funny to get that. And I thought, okay, you know, here's where we are. The goal is to have enough work out in the world that we can have that kind of just great, both have someone come back and think about it, but also have people look at your body of work and think about what it looks like to them and how they hang together and what the meaning is. And so you know, I have a friend, he's an author, uh, I think he's just a great writer, New York guy, his name's John Reed. He once said to me, though recently he told me he didn't remember saying this, but that's okay, I remember everything. He <laughs> said to me, if someone doesn't like your book because something you didn't intend to do, you know, then you have an obligation to figure out what went wrong. But if they don't like your book for something you intended to do, then you just have to embrace that they don't like your goal and you pulled it off. And I always thought that was really fascinating that if they don't like something you really tried to accomplish, then you have to accept it as part of the dialogue. If they point something out that you really weren't trying to put on the page, right? Then you made, then maybe you made a mistake that's worth considering and revisiting and revisiting in the future. And I love that idea. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's like, that's like the line between like being a hater or just misinterpreting the art. Mm -hmm. Wow. I never thought of that. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. John Reed. You I said? think it's brilliant. I love it. Wow. I love it. I come back to it all the time. That's one of those things. Like I feel like I would put on a post-it on my desk just to remember. 
Well, then take that as a gift from me for your death <laughs> via the great John Reed. John Reed. I'm going to have to look him up. John Reed, if you're listening, reach out, man. Yeah, dude, he's awesome. I love him. Um, I always, so one of the, I'm a huge uh, listeners of the show. You guys know this. So I, I apologize that I keep telling this. I'm a huge Ryan holiday fanboy. Uh, he's a, I mean, his big thing is stoicism. That's what he writes about mostly, but, uh, he has a really good book about just writing books. It's called perennial seller. And one of the things that really resonated from that book that I continually take with me outside and beyond of just writing books, but mostly for books. Uh, he said, uh, one, in one of the last chapters, he said, the best thing you can do for the book you just wrote is to start writing the next one. Mm-hmm. And I always, I, you know, that kind of, to me, that kind of resonates with what you're saying is like, you're, you're trying to build this body of this resume, this, this list of things that you've done, regardless of, you know, how you feel about them now versus when they were published. Right. And the, let, let the fan base kind of, you know, be the, the judge of that. But, being able to like build that list and kind of look back and use it as a reflective tool. Number one, like Brian Holiday saying, like that's building your quote unquote brand, but that's also, you know, for yourself, that's, that's, that's building yourself up. Right. I always, I don't know, I'm going to tie this to ice hockey because you know, that's who I am, but like the Stanley cup every year, you know, there's a ring added and that's where the, the champions names get added onto the Stanley cup ring. Right. And eventually it gets to the point where like it gets so big that they have to remove one of the older rings to add the new ring. And it's one of those, it's like one of those things where you just kind of keep, you keep chipping away and you keep going, you keep producing, you know, what you think is your best work and you just keep going. I mean, there's, you know, if you're an artist of any kind, you, you know, that, that that's just who you are. You're, you're putting your perspective into the world via art. And if people don't like it, they don't like it. That's okay. You don't have, you're not trying to, you know, reach an audience of everybody, right? Like there's, there's your art. You can do what you want with it. You can put it out there and have no one like it. And that's okay too, right? Obviously you're most likely you're not trying to do that, but like the fact that you took the step to make the art in the first place is already a step in the right direction. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the idea is to keep creating and producing and being, you know, in the flow of who you want to be, right? If you want to be a writer, you keep writing. If you decide you don't want to be a writer anymore, then shift the energy elsewhere. But absolutely, you know, it's the same thing. If you get a rejection, this applies well beyond writing, but certainly writing is a good metaphor. And you don't agree with the rejection. And of course we get rejected for an endless amount of reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of our work. Yep. Then you just send it back out immediately. That was one of the earliest pieces of advice I ever got. And, you know, to me, there's a larger piece of this, which goes to your point, which is, you know, no wallowing, right? Um, reflection is invaluable. Taking a moment, thinking about the experience, thinking about what you learned, what was positive, what was negative, but then it is on to the next thing. And, you know, I see this a lot of authors I help both with coaching, but also with marketing. They're like, what can we do next? What can we do next? What can we do next? And, you know, I'm like that. I'm an author primarily of small or academic or mid-sized presses, you know, so you only get so much attention. It's very hard to let go of your book, but that's the other reason yep. you think about it as an ongoing career and an effort to build 
a whole group of books or projects because you do have to also let go of the last book at some point. No one's interested or maybe someone's interested, but then you're expending a lot of energy trying to get, you know, one more interview, one more review, one more podcast. At some point you say, I took this as far as I can take it now on to the next thing. And that's, I believe it's the healthier way to go about things. Though it can be frustrating, especially if you feel like a book didn't get the attention you wish it got, but you Mm -hmm. still have to move on. You know, there's a director. He's another New York guy. I apologize with all my New York references. (laughs) I have a little bias at times, though you are a New Jersey guy. I get it. There's a director. And this is now name dropping because I am friends with him, but a guy named James Gray, um, Mm -hmm. who absolutely love his last movie was with Brad Pitt at Astra. Oh, I love that movie. That was good. Yeah, that movie is terrific. And all of his movies are terrific. Um, and he's a Queens guy, so I love that. But, you know, if you were listening to this, I might offend him. I hope I'm not. And again, we're not great friends. We're friends. I'm really friendly with his wife. But, you know, not every one of his movies has, well, this I can say without offending him, not every one of his movies has gotten the attention it deserves, I would say, right? So either yeah. the public or critics or someone, and in some cases, the producers of the movie themselves didn't prioritize it. So actually that's not an insult. I think he's had a series of things that haven't gone quite right while building an incredible body of work. But what I love about him, at least during the lifetime I've known him is that he's on to the next thing, right? Mm. The critics may miss it. The public may miss it. In one case, at least the wines, Harvey Weinstein, you know, fucked the release purposely. Yeah. Um, uh, So he's horrid and he's a monster anyway. And he fucked James Gray at least once. Uh, But James Gray goes on to the next movie. And I really, I like him anyway. (laughs) I like his movies anyway, but that I really admire putting your head down and saying, okay, here's the new project. Yeah. That to me is the bomb. I mean, that's the way you do it. To me, that's the way you do it. And you know, some things fall apart, some things get rejected and sometimes we fail. Um, that last thing of which I'm trying to learn better to understand and embrace, but it is on to the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. That I think is extremely important. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I'll drop the Yoda quote. The greatest teacher failure is, right? If you're if you're failing things and you're looking back at those failures and learning from them, that, that's not actually a failure, right? You're, you're continuing to push forward. Right? It, I always right. tell my students, I'm like, the only true failure is if you decide to give up. Right. That's that's a failure. But if you take, you know, take an F, right? you take take the bad grade you got on a test or whatever, and you recognize what you did wrong and you try to you try to correct those issues for the next thing, the next project, next grade, whatever it is that that's already you're already doing the right thing. You're already stepping in the right direction. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think that's so fascinating, especially when it comes to artists of all kinds is like, and I, I even think of this as a, as for, even from a consumer standpoint, like as a fan, right? Like if I discover somebody who, you know, this might be like their first big book, but they have four other books that they already published that didn't really get attention. But I love this brand new book that got, you know, the pedestal. I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at those other books. I'm going to, I'm going to buy them. I'm going to read them because I was a fan of this, this new book you would just put out. Right. And of course that goes with anything, bands, music, uh, movies, you know, whatever it is. But I think that 
moving forward and continually trying to improve your craft and put your heart into the project and kind of letting go of the shitty situations. Yeah. The book didn't get the press, right. Or, you know, the film didn't get the, the, the final production it deserved. Like, yeah, it sucks. But at a certain point it's out of your control and dwelling on it and, you know, expending all of your energy on the fact that it sucks is taking away the energy that you would rather be expending on the, creative process for the next project. Does that make sense? I I love that. And the only thing I would add to it, and this is something I'm learning. So here I am acting all self-actualized, which I'm not, but you know, this idea that failure also has to have a negative tinge to it. Like you didn't just say that I'm projecting that, right. That somehow, and this is what I was always like, that if it's a failure, And again, I was always good at managing it and moving on, but I also always treated failure as something negative. And it's only in the last couple of years I've seen that while we want to learn from our failures and adapt to them, and there's a whole body of science called adaptive performance, which is fascinating, which is a way to look at people's work. It's new to me. I love it. But also, why does any of it have to be so negative? We do want to learn from it. We do want to acknowledge our feelings and our hurt. But if, again, if you look at the longer road and the bigger picture and whatever the right metaphor is there, maybe that's already too many metaphors. <laughs> it's something that went wrong along the way, not all of which is in your control, right? And I've tried to really focus more on learning from failure and being content with what happened but not spending so much time being like, God damn it, you know, and I really was like that, even though I could always move on. I never got stuck in my failure and I always wrapped it in something negative. And I really, here I am all of a sudden I feel so old, but it's only now that I'm seeing that treat it as what it was, feel something, reflect on it, build on it. That's new to me. It really is. And uh, hearing you talk about it, I wish someone had been, I wish you'd been my teacher back in eighth or ninth or 10th grade. I could have used it. It took me, I had to get all the way into my fifties to really start thinking about it. It's funny too, because that mindset wasn't, it wasn't taught when I was a kid either. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, as I got deeper and deeper into learning about, you know, pedagogy and education, like that's kind of where it started to click for me. And of course, like I was being taught how to teach it, but you know, the best way to learn anything is to turn around and to try to teach it. So for me, it's like I started trying to teach this growth mindset, you know, with Carol Dweck, that's her whole thing. And it's, it it got to the point where it's like, that's just, I started to learn more about it. And once I started figuring out how to shift my own thinking that way, it started kind of like full circle coming back around. Right. And it's not again, that's not I, you know, I say that and it sounds so easy to just be like, oh, yeah, it's like I'm going to just I'm going to accept my failure and move on. Like, it's not that easy. Like failure sucks. It stinks. Right. It hits you in the gut sometimes. But I think that's important. Like you need to be, you know, bummed out sometimes to kind of turn that around because that makes you appreciate the success that comes from the next book you put out that gets all this press and it's in all these blogs and, you know, bookstagram pages and things like that. Like, you can't appreciate that if you don't have the sting from the failure that came first. Right. That's the other thing. Failure makes you appreciate the good things even more. Right. I was even thinking about that and I, but I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. I, I, I think about those things, 
you know, from an artistic perspective, but I do also recognize, I mean, that, that extends well beyond the creative life. I mean, that, that you can apply to anything, your professional life, your home life, relationships, things like that. Like sometimes the, the toughest conversation, the biggest obstacles, you know, they seem large and massive and they suck when it's happening, but then, you know, you have that tough conversation and you know, it's like this huge weight gets taken off your shoulders to the point where it's like, man, I should have done that earlier. I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about. But, oh, man, dude, I could think about it all day. The fact that you want to talk about it and record it just puts a smile on my face. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's what it is, man. It's a betterism. I got to mm-hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to make that stick. I don't know if that's working yet, but uh, why don't we let's I want to talk about your your book coming out. Um, we shift gears there if that's cool with you upstate, right? Yeah. Thanks brother. Uh, I had a book come out five years ago called the New York stories. And the story behind that story is that the New York story was comprised of three smaller collections that I worked on with a local press. They were sort of, not sort of, they were eBooks. Um, the characters and storylines and threads and feeling was very intentionally carried over into the second then third collection there was an intention speak about intentionality we'll pull all of the whole <laughs> all together for this last discussion Full circle. I was very intentional in callbacks some subtle some not subtle but i wanted the books to feel like they hung together i'm sorry the stories to feel like they hung together i wanted to create a sense of place i was influenced you know, by authors like raymond carver um, who I love, but also Elizabeth Crane, mm. who was a Chicago writer at the time. I completely idolize her. She's a New Yorker now and was a New Yorker before. Um, Juno Diaz, who's a little more controversial these days, but that book, Drown, had a huge impact on me. Yep. Um, so I wanted to create, very consciously create something like that. Um, and I wanted to model it on my hometown, though, if anyone from my hometown is listening, it's not like you're going to see yourself in that book. What I wanted was, what does it look like to circulate among the same groups of bars and restaurants to always see people you know in the neighborhood or in the supermarket to live by a river that's always, you know, passing through town to have a bridge you always cross. I mean, I wanted to sort of create that sort of, is that a phrase, sense mood? I don't know. I wanted to create <laughs> a mood. And I wanted to write stories and I wanted to write about what I'm especially interested in, which is you know, how we poorly communicate with one another, how, how we talk, how we you know, hurt ourselves, how we cycle back to bad habits and the things that we got stuck on and, and anger at our parents. And you know, part of my ideas that developed was that the first story, set of stories is very much loosely about the sins of our fathers. The second collection was going to be very much about sort of the chickens coming home to roost, right? So mm-hmm. what happens? How do those sins play out over generations? And that the third section was going to be very much about sort of a cleansing and a restarting. And, you know, what happened, uh, I wrote the first group. I didn't know there'd be a second group. The second group, I had sort of a belated kind of blog tour and book readings and people kept saying, oh, are there more stories coming? And talking about those first stories led to me thinking about the second stories and thinking about that framing. 
come in. I hoped and thought there might be a third set of stories. I didn't commit myself to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my hometown of Binghamton, New York, flooded. It never happened the whole time we were growing up. It completely flooded, including my elementary school being so deluged oh, man. that they had to tear it down. Uh, so Please. that river I'm referring to is real. It flooded the highway, crossed the highway. My hometown, my element, my neighborhood elementary school was underwater to the point, as I mentioned, they had to destroy it. The sort of downtown, I don't know the downtown, but the the neighborhood where all the stores are in my neighborhood, there's four parts to town. That was flooded. Places were closed. And I thought, well, there's the last set of stories. It'll be about a flood and how we come back from tragedy and how we build on that. So there's 30 odd stories. And then about a year ago, that publisher, who I really appreciate, um, the Chicago Center for Literature and Photography, um, they went defunct. And I wasn't really pitching or hustling as much. And so I didn't do anything immediately. But then I got, I decided to sort of get back into hustle mode. And so I asked that publisher if I could have the rights back. And he was fine with that. And then I reached out to Tortoise Books here in Chicago. Jerry Brennan's the publisher. He's a guy I just love. Um, I knew he liked the collection, but I also knew that he was finding contemporaries of mine um, and many much more famous than I, which I say with no ego, it'd be awesome to be more famous, but I am not. <laughs> Some of them are. And you know, they too had books that had, had been publishers that had gone to funk. So I reached out and I said, I know you love the collection. And I know you've been allowing some people's books to have second lives. Do you want mine? And he said, yes. And it was immediate. It was great. That doesn't always happen. That's awesome. Yeah. We refreshed it. I mean, you know, I'm going to use that language. We refreshed it leading up and into the start of the pandemic. So it became a project and that book just was released. So this refreshed version now called Upstate um, was released uh, last week and um, I'm enjoying that. And, you know, again, it's funny, you know, you talked about looking at your own work. In a way, I'm one of the worst kinds of artists. I mean, I'm very hard on myself. And I told the whole story about my second book, which I stripped down, but I'm someone who really enjoys my own work. You know? <laughs> and I must admit, this sounds terrible, though maybe appropriate for podcasts like yours, like I'm an enjoyer of self, you know, I mean, I'm always trying to improve and better myself and be a better parent and be the best I can be, but I'm also very happy with how I've gone about things. I mean, there's a million things I would do differently, but I like my work. And so rereading these stories and having someone make editorial comments of which were very good, because, you know, you can have a bunch of different editors. They've all got their own kind of voice also, and they all have their own stamp. And I'm very open to editors. I mean, I rarely do I say to someone that's wrong, um, but he had a bunch of good comments. And I thought, cool, let's refresh this book. Let's see how it shakes out. So it's fun to see it back in the world. Um, you know, whatever that means. I don't know. You're releasing something into a pandemic that was released before. Uh, but it is really wonderful to have it resurface. I'm using all the rewords. So it's resurfaced. <laughs> and you know, I appreciate you mentioning it because I'm glad to see it. And what's awesome is the the old book there was a local artist who did some illustrations, including the cover and Laura Zumowski and her artwork is dead on and it was fantastic and people loved it. And it really floored me. Um, The new book is lacking all those illustrations or without, but the publisher found a picture of the sort of, well, to me, the major bridge in my hometown. Mm -hmm. And that's what's on the 
recover. It's the actual Washington Street Bridge, which is a closed bridge to traffic. It's only open to people walking across it. And I love that bridge. I've written about it a number of times. It worked its way into stories and books. And so he's like, hey, I think this is your bridge. And I'm like, we don't have to look at any other covers, bro. That's, the cover. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's awesome. I I had no idea you had I, that had that long of a, a lifespan because I, I had picked that up when it dropped as the New York stories. And I will second the art, the art on that cover. I guess I have a collector's item now, but the art is phenomenal. Um, really resonates with the stories themselves. And I, you know, and this is a big piece of why I wanted to have you on the show is like, I, the, the fact that you took something so close to your heart and you were able to make a piece of art with it that resonated to so many people that was, that weren't even, you know, from that area, from that town. Right. I mean, that, that to me is inspiring. And I got, I got, I'll be honest, you know, I wrote stories by the sea. I, I was inspired as hell by what you did with the New York stories. I mean, you know, that, that's kind of where the idea for, and I'm pretty much admitting to you that I, you know, stole your idea, but like, (laughs) that's the idea of like stories by the sea was like, I, I tried to emulate what you were doing with that, you know, but with New Jersey, because that's, you know, my hometown. Right. But it, the the stories themselves were they resonated so much deeper than like just the the setting and yes the setting was a that was an important part of it but the emotions that came from it the human connection the relationships that were in the book really hit home for me in a sense that like I felt like I was from that I, I was in you said it was Bingham right I was in Bingham but not <laughs> you know what I mean so like I I, I attempted to try to do something like that with stories by the sea. And I don't think I came anywhere close to what you did. Cause your, you, I mean, your book was phenomenal, but I did not know that you also kind of quote unquote resurfaced it and kind of, you know, hashed it up with that third section there. That's awesome. I'm going to have to pick that up. You said it dropped last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, first off, I'm honored. It's pretty cool to have anyone aspire to want to do something you did. Uh, that would never get old. And of course, I'm a fan of yours. And I love that collection, Stories by the Sea. So Thank that's you. a double honor. I mean, you know, I feel like every book I write, I'm trying to capture the feeling I had when I read The Basketball Diaries, which is by far the most mm. influential piece of art on me. And I have a long list of influences, but, you know, that book was Live Wire. And I read it at 13 or 14, maybe a little younger. And I mean, it melted my brain or maybe it blew up my brain. I don't know which direction that's going to go, but <laughs> I've always wanted to capture that raw nerve, raw everything element. And that's part of that stripped down. That's part of that punk. I mean, no surprise, Jim Carroll, the author went on to be a punk singer um, who I also love. And, you know, so many punk bands are big influences on me. Though, again, I'm the most embarrassing punk there would be. But, dude, I really I appreciate that. I mean, this collection means a lot to me. It didn't get a ton of attention and I don't know that I'm ever going to write and get a ton of attention, but I really appreciate you and the reaction to it. Whenever someone finds it, I think they're usually like, fuck, you know, and that's <laughs> right, great. Right. That's great. That's exactly how I want them to feel. And, you know, what's funny is um, one of my running jokes. And again, it's not a funny joke because it was a jo- personal joke was that I wanted it to sort of uh, parallel what Richard Linkletter was doing with the Before Sunrise series, which mm. I have an affinity for right so they did before sunrise 
um, than they did before sunset, than they did before midnight. And when someone asked me if there'd be a third group of stories, I said, well, as soon as Richard Linkletter lets us know that he's got a third movie with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy still alive, <laughs> that was a joke. Um, and then they wrote the screenplay for that third movie and it became this trilogy. And so I've always sort of joked around about, uh, and he's a director I really enjoy and that's writing I really enjoy and it's lots of talking, which I really enjoy um, and damaged people, which I really enjoy. But what's funny is, A, I said it as a joke, but then I stuck to my guns and came up with my own sort of trilogy, which hangs together, is intended to hang together as a larger project. Right. But then it turns out that Richard Linkletter spent 10 years shooting Boyhood right in secret uh -huh. um, and i spent eight to ten years on the new york stories and boy you know boyhood and new york stories dropped right around the same time and then i said well if i can be so aspirational and possibly narcissistic i intended to you know ape the before sunrise series but maybe i was doing boyhood all along and didn't know it <laughs> you found you found the the correlating parallel even though you weren't looking for it you know, man, whatever it takes to get your book out in the world, for sure. Hey, yeah, you got to do what you got to do, especially these days with the uh, self-publishing with what it is, you know. So I totally get that. So what did you, let me ask you, I'll ask you like to our, you know, rapid fire questions here at the end. Wh what did you learn from that process of this? You said it was the third time that you've been, you've run the press, right? Uh, run this particular group of stories um i mean you have to have picked something up from like the first you know even though it's an ebook the first printing to the second printing to the third printing along that lifespan is there something that you took away as an author from that i mean you know that's it's i feel like that's uncommon for that to happen so to me it sounds like there's some sort of like you know writing lesson in there editing lesson maybe something in there but i don't know what you what did you take away from that again this is a little narcissistic not the word i'm looking for i mean what i learned what i think others would learn about their own work right is that there are threads that we may not even know we're putting out in the world right narratives both personal and authorial is that the word like there are things mm. we come back to that we want to understand right and so those start to become more clear i remember once talking to a friend of mine about a book of mine he had read and we were talking about communication and i'm so interested in how we fail to communicate or how we hammer haw or how you know something gets stuck and we can't figure out how to say it and then we have to deal with the fallout and then he said and he's a longtime friend of mine he said well so much of your books are about coping right? How mm. do we cope? How do we cope? How do we cope with grief and trauma and tragedy and violence? And I thought, damn, I hadn't even thought about coping. So, you know, one thing I get, I think one thing we can all get by looking back at our own work is we start to see, right, one, the ideas that we're drawn to. And then when you have a collection like this, I get to see how my understanding of those threads deepens, even if it's not conscious, right? Mm. The other thing you get to see, I got to see, and I'm speaking in both tongues here, is you start seeing your own voice, right? And so I can see the work getting more stripped down. I can also see over 10 years, 
is that when the collection starts, it's so I, 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 because I am interested in I, where am I? I, whoever the character is, male, female, Ben Tans or not Ben Tans, that, that doesn't matter. But I'm interested in what the person's experiencing moment to moment, mm. sometimes even at the expense of other characters. That's conscious, right? Right. But what's funny about that, what was less conscious is that as the stories evolve, they do broaden right? We do start experiencing other people's feelings. And so I couldn't see that till I went back to it. Um, I didn't do that consciously. Sometimes I do things consciously. I like to write in first person. I almost like it like you're in the Terminator's head where he's sizing up the police station and he's like, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah, you know, yeah. that is how I see the universe, you know, a sort of sizing up of scenes and scenarios. So that's how I write too. How are people experiencing the room. I remember a couple of years ago being really late night at a bar with a couple of guys who I was sort of friendly with who were very drunk. I was not, but I was drinking. And then another guy came along who was very drunk and it was a casual thing. It was at a conference, but this guy, as I watched him approaching, I thought dangerous. Like this guy's going to be a problem. Yeah. He's too angry, even though he wasn't acting angry. And so when he walked away, I said to the other two guys, hey, I'm going to bolt, uh, but keep an eye out. This guy is going to be a problem. And both the guys are like, nah, he's fine. He's just drunk and stupid. And then maybe a week later, I was texting with them and they're like, oh, shit, that became a fucking nightmare after you left. <laughs> it was just clear to me, you know, but that's being a writer and being an observer. And so yeah. I'm very interested also in my protagonist being observers, even as when they get it wrong. And that's what you start to see. And so what did I see? You know, I start seeing the things I'm interested in, they become more clear, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the question becomes, do you want to stay with those themes or do you want to try out new ones? Um, that that That's what's emerged for me in this process. And I'll always be interested in how we interact, how we do it well, how we do it poorly. You know, dude, what it all mean? We can go back to the beginning of this conversation, how it all works. One of the stories I think is literally called How It All Works, but that I'm really interested in, right? How yeah. does it work? When I say it, I mean every interaction of every day I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, that's a, you know, I, I think I, I think I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago, but I don't know. Writing is such a good exercise in developing empathy because it's especially fiction. It puts you in someone else's, it forces you to stand in someone else's shoes, right? So the more you do that, especially if you're using first person to tie in the whole subconscious thing we were talking about before. If you're using first person, it works especially. But if you write fiction, it forces you to put yourself into somebody else's shoes, which is developing that, that empathetic skill set. And then, like you said, it kind of crosses over into like the, the real life. So it's, it is very surreal. Like you said, like it kind of, you start to observe things and you notice things and you kind of like, you develop stories about things you see in real life and you know, the better you get at it, the more accurate you are like that story you're just saying. I mean, that's little things like that. Like I've noticed in my life happen more often than not. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, you tell someone that and you kind of sound crazy, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, it's, I'm, you know, I'm not yanking my own chain here or anything. Like I kind of, that's kind of where I saw things going and it ended up that way, you know, but it's kind yeah. of, yeah. And also, you know, we as humans can tunnel vision, right? Yeah. So yesterday, I don't remember why this has happened, happened yesterday. A writer I'm a fan of, for some reason, 
tweeted a link to an old piece of mine um and you know just you know notif- notified me right with twitter did the ad ben Tanzer. so it popped up in my feed and i didn't remember the story i remember writing it it's a piece of flash fiction it's about a father and a son it is torn from my own experience right right i read the story and it was it was uh, inspired by an exchange i'd had with my son when he was 6 7 He's 18 now, this particular kid. He's off at college. He's six feet tall. You know, <laughs> he's awesome. He's beautiful and angry and everything 18-year-olds are. Yep. Um, but that's not this story. And it was a reminder that he was once, you know, two feet tall and lounging in sweatpants and wanted to have a private conversation with me that he set up in a way that was very moving. And it's not that he doesn't move me all the time, but I forgot how moving he was as a child and how gorgeous and interesting, right? You sort of can forget those things. And so, you know, to your point, it's not only that you gain more empathy, which I totally agree with. Um, it gives you a bigger picture of your own universe and then the universe. And yeah. that's very moving to me. You know, I'd like to be, I would like to be a more expansive presence in the universe, even that just means in my own head. Right. And that takes a lot of work, man. It takes a lot of work to really, be really as does. awesome as you want to be. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely does. It's a never ending quest. You know? I think that's a great note. Let's that's a great note to end on. Why don't we uh the ever ever ending quest to expand your own universe? <laughs> yeah, dude, right on. <laughs> All right. So are you ready for these uh we got little quick little rapid fire questions? Um, and sure. your answers don't have to be rapid fire. Like if you want to, they can be, but they don't also don't have to take it. They're taken lightly. We'll say. Uh, so the first question is what are you currently reading and would you recommend it to our listeners? Yes. So the thing I'm most currently reading is Tomboy land. It is an ex, uh, essay collection by Melissa Falavino. I feel like I always pronounce her name wrong, even though we're friends, but I do very bad with names. I did it bad with your <laughs> name the first time we talked. Uh, Tom My Land is a really excellent exploration of gender and violence and sexuality in the Midwest. Um, it's a debut collection, but man, it reads like, mm. I mean, again, she's an experienced writer. She's an awesome individual. I'm a big fan of hers anyway, but the collection is it's the bomb. I couldn't couldn't recommend it strongly enough. Awesome. Add it to my list too. All right. Second question: What is your favorite meal to prepare and cook, either for yourself, for your family, for your kids, for your friends? You got a favorite? Yeah. I mean, dude, I wish I was a good cook. I also wish, you know, some of the things I prepare that my family likes, like this weird pasta stir fry thing I learned from someone which my kids really like is not even my favorite thing but I make it what I really do enjoy though is whipping up tacos for everybody yeah and making all the little pieces and having the right shells and striking the right cord of steak and chicken and vegetables and you know having sour cream in the house and the right combo of you know refried beans to white rice and the shredded lettuce I mean dude I could do that every day so yeah tacos always tacos man people are sick of them here but i could do that every day (laughs) me too man it's my favorite food um all right and the third and final question don't feel like you have to go profound but you're welcome to if you want to 
what is one life lesson you want our listeners to walk away with today? It can be from the convo. It can be something totally different, but one thing you think really kind of hones in on something we should all learn. Wow. Dude, that's not light at all coming off of tacos and books, but, um, <laughs> and I would love to think I could be profound at the drop of a hat. I, I really am though. It's just on my mind lately. So it fits the thread of this conversation and we had it a bit too, but, sort of not just embracing, but understanding, even deconstructing our failures, understanding what they mean, what we did or didn't do, why they happened, why we let things happen, you know, adapting to that, adapting, moving forward, evolving into it. I really think an embrace of failure serves people in ways that are very profound. And again, I am projecting it has been serving me well lately, but I'm glad there's a whole body of science that supports it. So I'm not totally speaking out of the side of my mouth. So that, you know, I would, I would finish on that, man. I think part of that quest, part of that being an expansive being, part of being the best version of yourself is, is understanding how and why and what it means to fail. I love it. Absolutely. Failure is a huge, you know, it's one of those things you don't want to, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but you got to embrace it the only way all right ben well thanks for coming on the show man uh, i appreciate your time where can listeners find you online if they want to connect or they want to buy your your book coming out upstate where can they find you you know tangerben.com is a great place to start that's sort of my mothership uh upstate is primarily available through tortoisebooks.com. They're still selling copies that I will sign before they mail them out, despite the pandemic. So Tanzer Ben is good. I'd love people to come. You can find me at Ben Tanzer on Twitter as well. Please do that. I mean, I love connecting. So if you all are interested enough, I really am everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, and we will talk. I would love that. You know, please don't hesitate. And dude, I want to thank you for finding me and inviting me on and, you know, always being a very positive presence in my life. I very much appreciate that. Hell yeah, man. The, uh, that extends both ways. I appreciate you just as much. Well, that is definitely the place to end this, but, uh, yeah, dude, seriously, much appreciated. Yeah. All right, man. We'll talk. We'll have to get around to him here somewhere. Maybe we'll do it on your, your podcast sometime. We'll see. I would love to have you back, please. Let's work that out next. All right. Sounds good, man. Good talking to you. You too. All right. Later. Bye. Hey, guys. Just one more quick thing before you take off. Um, I wanted to take a second to express my sincere gratitude for your time and your attention. It's appreciated way more than you realize. Um, If you'd like to support our cause and what we're doing here at Betterism, there's a few ways you can do that. Um, You could share, rate, or review the show. Um, It's available wherever you get podcasts. You can join our blog and contribute some of your wisdom to our growing family. Or if you're able to, you can donate or subscribe any amount to paypal.me slash bingbang. That link is in the show notes. Um, Thanks again so much for your time, and I hope you have a great day.
Well, that's it, friends. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to swing through again. If you'd like to reach out, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at medium.com slash betterism. Be better at whatever it is you're building. And remember, friends, stay learning. <laughs>